Hi, I'm Jennifer Wilde, and you're listening to Sober Exposure. If it's about recovery, we're going to cover it. It's like one big therapy session, but it's free. So thanks for joining our dysfunctional family as we uncover recovery with Sober Exposure. Let's go. Hey, guys, Sober Exposure. Here we are again with me, Jen Wilde. And this, uh, this guest today I found on the street corner. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> hey, you know what I, I do? I would love to have someone on the show that got sober that I found on the street corner. I'm sure I could find one, you know, that'd be great. I'm going to do that. We'll, we'll find one. I'm sure I could find one somewhere in one of the meetings. Anyway, I, I have Joe L with me. And actually I found Joe because his sister is like one of my dearest, dearest, dearest friends. Rachel goes back about 22 something years with me. So let's welcome Joe. Hi, Joe. Hi, Jen. Uh, Welcome to the show. And I'm not going to make this about your sister, but let's talk about your sister. Because (laughs) if if you went through her photo gallery and her phone, oh my God, the pictures that she has. Okay. So, so Rachel's sober. She has, do you know how many years she has sober? It's got to be close to 20. Yeah. I think it's double digits at this point. And she works in recovery. And I met her in, 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 in the rooms. I did not stay sober when, since I met Rachel back 20 something years ago. It seems like every time I was in trouble, like on the street, in trouble, either got arrested or whatever it may be, I would call Rachel and she would always come to my rescue no matter what. And on top of it, it would always be on a friggin' holiday. So I would always ruin her holiday. Like I remember it was uh, Memorial Day. She'd be coming to my rescue. She'd be coming to the hospital. One time, uh, there was one summer where I got really into Flocka. It was the summer of Flocka. And something happened. And I'll be damned. Rachel came to my rescue. And I, I mean, I, we're laughing, but I was half dead. And she had to take me to the hospital because I was just tripping. Yeah, she she's a great girl. So anyway, this is how this is how she connected me with Joe. And Joe has a story kind of like me. He's been in and out for years. Um, you started when you were what, 15? 15. In the okay. Family of recovery, father sober. Give us uh the cliff notes. Who are you and why are you here? Yeah, thank you, Jen. I'm I'm so happy to be here and and thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, it, I'm a guy who, you know, grew up in an alcoholic home. Uh, you know, everyone knows the story. Uh, caught some charges when I was 15. It was go to juvenile hall till I was 18 or go to rehab. You know, after some serious deliberation, I decided to uh, take the rehab. And that started a long 18 year uh, in and out, in and out of treatments and jails and institutions and uh, meetings and, and, and all the different ways a guy can try to get sober and get his life together. Um, until I crashed and burned in 2015 in Burns, Tennessee, of all places, um, and, and got clean. Yeah. And uh, you know, the interesting thing, you know, that I've that I've come to terms with for myself is that you know I I was a guy who thought I knew, you know, I thought I knew what the deal was. I thought I knew. I thought I knew it all. We all know? know it all when we're using. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and you know, and that's one of the big things, Jen, is that. You know, I, I I was really convinced one of the old ideas I had was that if you could just get me sober, you know, if you could just get me off, you know, I mean, I was shooting dope, smoking crack, drinking whiskey. I mean, it was I'm, I'm an all or I never did flocka. 
now. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's you're on a different level with that. But uh, you weren't in South Florida. I guarantee you, if you were using in South Florida that summer, you would have done Flocka. <laughs> I promise you. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad I wasn't. You know, on that Flocka. Uh, but uh, you know, so you know, go, going through, you know, this process, I, I, I really thought like, yeah, man, if you could just get me clean, if you get me sober, everything will be okay. You know, and what I found was that I would get sober or clean, you know, off booze and dope. And I was not okay. You know, there was something going on with me stone cold sober. Um, that was a serious problem. Um, and until I started taking a look at what was going on with me sober, I, I was going to get some relief. You know, at a, at a very early age, like most of us, I found a solution. You know, I found, you know, alcohol and drugs. And, and you know, I've heard a million AA stories and NA stories and all that. And and one of the super common themes is, you know, I, I felt different. I felt weird. You know, I smoked the first joint or drank the first beer or whatever it was. And I felt comfortable in my own skin. That ease and comfort. Right. That's right. That's right. I just love what you just said. And this is the problem with chronic relapsers. And this was the problem with me. I'd put it down and I, I wouldn't wait until a miracle happened. I'd be, I, I would detox. I'd put them, I would put the drugs and alcohol down mm-hmm. and then I would feel like I felt before I started using that the, the skin and bones, just the rawness before the ease and comfort that I get from the using. Cause we're different. I didn't do the work yet. So I'd still feel sick. What they like to call a dry drunk, you mm-hmm. know? So I'd yeah. say, fuck it. I'm, I don't feel better. I'm not getting better quick enough. So fuck it. And I just use, and then I feel better for a little <laughs> bit until I like am on the street doing flock and calling your sister. That's right. You know, yeah. and then that's unfortunately what it looks like. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I also suffer from something. I don't know if, if this is something you've experienced, but something called delusional thinking, you know, <laughs> and that's stone cold sober, you know, where I can believe something in reality or believe something in my mind and all the evidence and reality is to the contrary, you know, and there there was a time in my life, I, you know, I came down to Tennessee when I was 19, my parents shipped me off here to live with my sober brother at the time. And, um, you know, had had to get me out of Maine. I was messing with heroin and running with that crowd and just had nothing good going on up there. And, uh, you know, I, I came down here with a GED in hand and, uh, you know, got a little job working for a temp agency and that, you know, the company I was answering the phones for hired me and it was a big corporation. Next thing you know, I'm kind of moving through the ranks and they send me to Ireland and I'm living in Dublin and I'm living in London. And I'm making all this money and I'm, you know, thinking I'm this guy and, and, and living a pretty fun life, an exciting life. And, you know, so at the end, I say all that to say at 33 years old. I was sitting in a trap house in East Nashville with no running water, no electricity, uh, with my dog Gibson, thinking about, you know, getting a hundred dollars for him on Craigslist. But in my mind, I'm this kind of like world traveling ladies man, James Bond type figure, and I'm one move away from getting it all back. Okay, so yeah, the glam and the glory. I could relate to myself as a radio personality and being on the radio and all this uh, jazz thinking, you know, in my demented head, but wait, you know, I'm, I'm the, I'm Jennifer Wilde. I'm the radio personality, but meanwhile, yeah, no, I haven't been hired in, you know, five years out of work, same thing, doing drugs. And let's just go back to this uh, Gibson thing. We've all had bottoms and everyone has a different bottom. I mean, there's, there's bottoms, there's jails, there's, 
you get arrested, you, you OD. I, I got to tell you, Joe, wanting to put your dog on Craigslist for a 20 rock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there it is. Right. So. So fast forward, you know, spoiler alert, Gibson is living on a farm in Kingston Springs, Tennessee, doing well. I had to give him up when, uh, you know, when I got clean, but uh, I did not pawn him on Craigslist. <laughs> how, how, who convinced you not to do that? Because let me tell you something, I would never even think to do that. I did have, you know what, I had a situation once where I was in a, a bad hotel room mm-hmm. and I was in a bad area in a hotel room and I had my dog, my dog was a puppy. And some girl's like, you know, you need to get some rest. Let me take the dog. She takes, she takes my dog. And then she tries to kidnap my dog. And then I forgot what hotel room she was in. You know, it was just one of those skanky hotels. And I hear my dog barking. I knock on the door and some guy comes to the door. He's like, no, no, that's our dog. That's not your dog. I said, oh, the fuck it isn't. And, uh, I just, I freaked out. And I said, listen, you don't know who you're messing with. I go, you know what? I am, I'm calling the cops right now because I don't have anything on me. And I guarantee you got a lot of shit in your hotel room. You give me back my dog. I am dog now. <laughs> I got my dog back. But who who convinced you not to put the dog on Craigslist? I, I, I'm a huge animal person. So this is why this is like, I'm into the story. Yeah, I, yeah. Because it, I, I wouldn't even think like, I can put my dog up on Craigslist. I can get myself. Like if I'm that desperate, that's how strong drug addiction yeah. is. You would do that. Yeah. Well, you know, so... It, interestingly enough or funny, not, not funny then kind of funny now, you know, so I was living in the hood, you know, in, in East Nashville. And so I'd, I'd walk Gibson, you know, when I wasn't too dope sick and, you know, everybody like, Oh man, he's a pretty dog. He's a pretty dog. And, you know, and he was, he's a, he's an Australian shepherd, golden retriever, just a beautiful dog. And, uh, you know, so just in my insanity sitting there, um, my friend, my friend Elijah had started working at this place called Christie Cookies. And he was like, you know, he'd gotten sober and he's, you know, working there making cookies. And so he would, he would come by and, and knock on my door and there'd be, you know, I wouldn't answer. I'd be held up. No, no running water. The whole deal just kind of locked myself in a back room. And, and he would leave these boxes of cookies on the front door. <clears throat> Excuse me. He would leave like, you know, a box of snickerdoodles, you know, a box of chocolate chip. And uh, it, it just to kind of make sure I was eating. And then Gibson and I would we'd eat these cookies. Like, that's what we were living on, really. And like, that's, you know, true story. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, t- to this day, I can't see a snickerdoodle. You know, I, mean, I don't even want to want to look at it. I don't yeah. smell it. Uh, no Nothing. snickerdoodle for me. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Ain't going to have it. Yeah. That's a trigger. A snickerdoodle yeah. trigger. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, I'm, you know, I'm sitting there and, and you know, I'm just the the hopelessness and the futility of it all and and just being sick and that madness on me and um you know I, the thought man I, I i can probably give him up to a better home really is what the thought was and i can probably also get some cash for him was the you know insane thought that ran with that thought and uh you know luckily you know whatever happened that day i ended up scoring somehow and uh you know didn't sell gibson and and you know that's that and never really cross that bridge again you know that was your that was divine intervention your higher power working for you in your addiction really you know or yeah. actually no you know what that was gibson's higher power and my family we've talked about this gibson probably saved my life for real you know and you know there were times i mean i had him for seven years and it was the hard seven years you know, the seven years at the end where it was, you know, uh, you know, I I'd had an illegal, 
enterprise, you could say. The drug task force of, of Davidson County, Tennessee, didn't like my business practices and asked me to, you know, stop doing them. Um, so, you know, I had to, was kicked out of that place and had some big boy charges, you know, the, the guns and money and drugs and all that. And, um, you know, Gibson was with me through that. And then he was with me, you know, as a homeless guy, basically living in this flop house. Um, and, you know, there were times when like getting home and making sure Gibson had some food or letting Gibson out or Gibson barking or whatever it was, was potentially that thing that kept me going for another day or two. And, you know, I truly, truly believe that. And I know that's kind of like a, you know, sounds like a heartwarming story, but it's real. You know, it's, it's a real thing for sure. Yeah, it's real. Of course. I mean, it's similar to someone that has a child and they're trying to feed their child in an addiction. It's sad, you know, mm -hmm. it's really sad. And thank God the dog's away. I know my dog Iggy, got me through my mother's death. My, my dog Giggy got me through a lot too. I believe that every animal is brought to us for a reason. And every particular, like that particular dog Gibson with that particular personality was brought to you for a reason, you know? Mm. Yeah. That, I can get really way out there with that shit, but yeah, that's a metaphysical show. We'll do that another time. <laughs> you come from the alcoholic family. I, I, I know all this stuff. Your brother's sober, your sister's sober, your father's sober. Your father is just, he's funny as shit. Your brother's, your brother's hilarious. He's a comedian and uh, musician. You, you come from a very funny family. So you are sort of, could I, could I say maybe like the black sheep because mm -hmm. they were all sober and like you just couldn't get it? That's right. Yeah, I was the holdout. You know, I mean, it was... It was, uh, they, you know, they worked a, their own program and, and allowed me to hit my bottom to the best of their ability. But there were times, I mean, you know, years and years ago where I was in bad places and my brother Adam would, he'd show up at the house and I'd be, my thing was, I liked being in like a, a small enclosed area with a plate of dope and, you know, like no lights. That was kind of like my scene, you know, which I don't know where that comes from, but, you know. I remember I had come back from from overseas and I got rented this house, this big house in uh, in West Nashville, and I had no furniture. Like there's literally nothing in this house for months except an old twin mattress that was in a walk-in closet in this massive master bedroom, and like that was where I hung. You know, like I would you know close the door to this huge walk-in closet and go in this little mattress in that closet and and do my thing. And, uh, one day my, uh, my roommate at the time who, you know, he had some furniture in his section of the house, but he had seen me in there for days and, you know, was worried and he was scared. And so he called my brother and Adam showed up and, you know, was calling me and I shut the phone off and he's walking around and he's banging on the windows and he's like, we're worried about you. You know, you know, do you want some help? You know, the whole deal. And, uh, you know, so there were times when, you know, he showed up and that fear, you know, got him to do those types of things. But for the most part, they just kind of, you know, let me hit the bottom, um, you know, and, and one of the worst things that's happened between Adam and I um, that, you know, I, it's just one of those things that I, I just I, I can't imagine what he went through. You know, he came and picked me up one day. Uh, I tried to detox myself. And for anyone who's listening, it's a terrible idea. Um, was trying to get off benzos and booze and dope and the whole thing all at once. And, 
you know, was really sick and thought I was dying. And I called Adam and he came and picked me up and he, you know, brought me back to his house and he, you know, he was like, threw me in the shower. I mean, I smelled like death. And I, and I remember getting out of the shower and thinking, man, I feel a lot better. And that was the last thing I remember. And I woke up and I had a grand mal seizure, you know, full on, uh, almost bit my tongue off, blood and foam, the whole deal. And I'm sitting in the back of an ambulance and, you know, Adam is just losing his mind. Um, you know, and then it was, it was years after that before I got clean. Um, you know, so there were a lot of experiences, um, you know, with family that they just had to watch me, you know, out there being that black sheep. And, and, and I just, I just can't imagine what they went through, you know, really. Yeah. Me, I did the same. I did the same to my loved ones. And at the time we don't care. And isn't it amazing that you could be at the point where you're biting your tongue off with a, with a grand seizure and then think it's a good idea to go out and use again. You know, I mean, and uh, also, again, too, that's that's something just medically, obviously, you know, I'm Jen Wild. I'm just, you know, just some uh, bitch doing a podcast talking about recovery, you know, but uh, (laughs) I, I do happen to know for a fact that benzos and alcohol are the two most dangerous substances to detox yourself off of. Children, don't try that at home, please. Really? You could die from detoxing off alcohol and benzos. Joe can tell us a lot about that too, because let's start shifting into the the happy the happy part, you know, the yeah. part where you get to come on a podcast and talk about how you got it all together and how you're so good. <laughs> All right. Took you a million and one times getting sober, using like me. Um, you can tile the floor with all the white chips. Mm-hmm. There's not white chips in every part of the country or the world. And this podcast is like world renowned at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, a white chip is it's a chip that they give you when you first walk into an AA meeting. And it just is basically surrendering and saying that you're going to um, commit to your sobriety. And they give you this little white chip. I have enough to tile my entire house. All right. So take us to your last white chip. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I'm in that little house in East Nashville, you know, thinking, you know, Gibson, thank you for saving me the last piece of snickerdoodle, you know, and, <laughs> uh, and, you know, I'm done. It's over. I, I've, I'm running from warrants. I'm running from PO violations. Uh, you know, I've just, it's, it's over. I'm hopeless internally. I'm homicidal. I'm suicidal. You know, there's nothing left. And my father and another man from Alcoholics Anonymous, they, they show up at my door and do a 12 step call. And <clears throat> this guy, Jerry, who I'd never met, you know, he's like, man, do you want help? And I was like, yes, I will. I want some help. And he's like, all right, man, well, here's the deal. You're a homeless guy and you're indigent and you have no insurance and no money. And so, and again, I just want to preface this by saying, I don't recommend this. This is just kind of how they did it with me. There's definitely safer ways to detox. Um, But he's like, man, we need to get you drunk. And then we're going to get you drunk and we're going to throw you in the ER and hope they admit you. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. That's not, that's, that is safe. That is safe. Safer than doing it on your own. Yeah. That was smart. Yep. Yeah. And I'm like, well, man, all of a sudden I'm like, well, what did you say your name was? Jerry? You know what I mean? My, my new best friend, you know? I get to get drunk? All right, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So, you know, I, you know, they take me over to this liquor store and, and, uh, you know, of course my, my father not happy about the situation is like, well, what do you want? I was like, how about some Jack Daniels? He's like, <laughs> well, you know, we're going to get you some, some bottom shelf, you know? And so he, he goes in and gets me a half fit the whiskey and I, I chug it in the parking lot of this hospital. And, you know, I'm sitting there and one of the things that I talk a lot about with, you know, guys I work with trying to get sober is that, you know, what makes me an alcoholic or an addict is not necessarily what alcohol and drugs does to me. You know, drugs, drugs and alcohol do something very similar to most humans. But what alcohol and drugs does for me is magical. You know, it just it does something for me that it just does not do for the average person. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm suicidal, homicidal, hopeless, the whole deal internally. I start drinking this whiskey and that thing happens. You know, I start warming up a little bit and, and I look over at Jerry. I said, Jerry, my friend, I have overreacted. You know, can you go ahead and just take me back to East Nashville? And he's like, you know, get your ass in there. You know, but, but that's the magic of this thing is that I, you know, a guy like me can be completely destitute with no options but a little whiskey and all of a sudden that old spirit comes back and I'm ready, you know, I'm ready to get my, my business plans back going. I'm ready to get my LinkedIn profile together. You <laughs> know? The king of the world, right? Yeah. And, and so I, I, I've talked to a lot of folks that are, you know, alcoholic, not alcoholic. And, and, and I, I can assure you that if, uh, you know, just a, an average person who doesn't have the thing we have uh, found themselves in that hopeless situation and you gave them a little whiskey, they would not all of a sudden be like, oh, everything's okay, you know, and, but that's what it does for me, you know, so, so fast forward, I, they, they admit me, you know, after I black out and vomit on myself and, ER and you know, that whole thing. You're still going to get that LinkedIn profiled. That's right. Yeah. Running that company by tomorrow. Oh yeah. You know, I was, I, I love talking about getting sober when I was real high, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, sitting around, man. We need to get sober tomorrow. You know, we got to yeah. come up with this business plan. You know, all sorts of incredible ideas on the bar stool that never made it past the the door. And uh, you know, so I'm, I'm in the psych ward. I'm in there for five or six days, and uh, then I end up coming to the place that I now work, Discovery Place. And we we knew about Discovery Place because my brother had gotten sober here four years before that. Um, and it's a, you know, a men's spiritual retreat out in Burns, Tennessee. And, you know, you know, one of the things that, you know, was really attractive about it to my family was a, that, you know, my brother had got clean here and was four years sober, but, um, that it was a all men. Uh, and then all the men that work here, 44 staff members, they all went through the program. You know, so every guy that works here was at one time, even the executive director 20 years ago was a guest at Discovery Place. Right. And thank God it's all men because, the, you know, <laughs> where you were at, I, there would be a lot of chicks that would be wanting to hit on you at that point. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, in my mind, though, Jen, in my right. mind, I was that guy. You know, right. I'm like, I'm running mindfulness meditation groups in the psych ward. You know what I mean? Like, you know, <laughs> just completely out of my mind. So, yeah. So tell me a little bit more about this place. Cause it sounds like, I mean, so it's not, it's not just like a regular typical treatment center. No, no, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not medical. It's not clinical. Uh, it's a nonprofit. We've been around for 24 years. And basically the, the, the quick story is that 24 years ago, 25 years ago, the founders were working for a big treatment center. 
um, that was, you know, heavy 12 step. And around that time in the 90s, insurance started really dictating you know, length of stay and dictating what you can and cannot teach. And uh, I don't even, don't even get me started. I need my son. In treatment. I can't even. And let me also say, we're talking about this discovery. I, I'm, we're, this is not like a, a paid advertisement or anything like that. I legitimately want to hear about this place because yeah. I'm a little tired of just the regular treatment centers. No doubt. No yeah. doubt. And, and, and so basically, you know, as a nonprofit, we, you know, they set it up to say like, all right, look, you know, we want to be around the price of a deductible, you know, which in 97 was, I think, like $1,800 or something like that. Um, and, you know, we want, you know, if you pay $1,800, you're getting 30 days, period. Wow. You know, it's not every four days you got to meet with your case manager and fight for three more days. And like, I've been in those treatment centers and I know that feeling. And it's like, you, you can never surrender. You can never get to that place where you begin to heal because you're constantly thinking, is it, two days from now, I'm going to be back in the madness, you know, and it's just terrible. It's terrible. And, and I think really, and, 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 uh, you know, on a much broader topic, but, uh, I think it's a, it's a problem societally where we start thinking to ourselves like, okay, 30 days, they're going to go to treatment and they're going to get fixed, you know, and that's the, that's the idea. And that's the, you know, the mindset of a lot of folks out there that just, that just don't understand what this deal is all about. And, you know, at 30 days sober, I'm dangerous. Yeah. You're just, you're not, your brains are, they say that you don't even get your brains back until five years. I mean, 30 <laughs> days, it's like you're, you're just going to the ER and you're getting stabilized That's in right. 30 days. I look at it stabilization. That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. It's acute care. You know, we're, we're talking like physically, you know, I mean, a lot of these guys that come through myself included, I mean, I was, I was so sick that first couple months you know, coming off that much dope and booze, like, I mean, a crazy story at uh, day seven in here, I woke up and my left eye just stopped working. Like it was completely pointed in. Everything was double. They got me an eye patch. They called me pirate Joe. It was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Not, not funny at the time, but you know, it is now, but, uh, you know, so I'm walking around with this eye patch, you know, like a crazy person. Um, but, the difference between this place and everywhere else I'd been is that I sat down with a dude, his name was Matt. And, you know, we call our counselors guides because, you know, they're not LADACs, they're not clinical. You know, these are guys that went through the program and he was, you know, four or five years sober and he, he looked like he had his, you know, shit together and, you know, had, you know, had a, you know, good looking fiance and just, you know, he's just a guy that didn't look like he was like me. And, you know, he had wearing polo shirts and his hair looked good. And, you know, I was like, okay. And, and initially I was like, man, this guy is probably full of shit. You know, like there's no way you did dope like I did. I mean, dude, I was eating snickerdoodle cookies thinking about pawning my dog. Like there's no way. And so we started talking a little bit and he started sharing some stories about, you know, what it looked like for him. And the truth was he put me to shame. Like his story was darker and harder and longer than mine was. And at that moment, I didn't know this was happening, but, you know, I began to start like believing in something, you know, and I looked at this guy and I was like, man, I can't even recognize a guy that, you know, lived like I lived, not just because of what he looked like, but the way he carried himself and the way he spoke and the peace he had about him. And, you know, I just, I started believing like, Hey, if it can work for this guy, maybe it can work for me. You know, and what I didn't know was at the time I was actually doing the steps, 
you know, and, and that's something that, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about is that that big difference between like, what does it look like to, you know, go to AA meetings and, and drink Starbucks and go silver bowling versus doing the actual program, you know, and beginning to have that new experience and changing internally. Joe, Joe I, I don't want to go sober bowling. I hate sober bowling. I get depressed when I go sober bowling. Oh my God. I just want to, I, I, I want to fucking use if I'm yeah. sober bowling. I hate it. And you know what else? I, I can't stand like, I'm so sorry. New Year's Eve, <laughs> AA dances. People are going to get so mad at me, but you know what? They're depressing because 10 people show up and it's, it's gross for the most part. So what can we do besides sober bowling? Because I am a huge advocate of the 12 steps and Alcoholics Anonymous and the big book. But sober bowling doesn't do it for me. And no. so my sponsors like fellowship. I mean, I met some great women and I love, you know, I do like going out for sushi and shopping with my sober friends, but I ain't sober bowling, motherfucker. Uh, I'm with you. I'm with you. And, and you know, that's one of the things like I didn't know you could have real fun in recovery. You know, like not like, oh, these are some sobriety related events. You know, because I'm, I'm I'm with you. I'm like I'm look, man. I, I, one of my big problems was I don't like to conform. I never have. You know, like I don't want to feel like I'm you know joining a cult or being sold something. I, I don't you know I I don't want to like be the guy at the sober dance. You know, like it's just I don't want to do that. And you know, I I honestly at that point you know getting sober, I'd rather sit in a trap house and shoot dope, really. You know, and so. The difference that that happened for me this time was that I got around these dudes and like they were like having fun, like they were laughing and cutting up and zinging each other. And like they were enjoying their lives, not in like a like this is recovery, you know, like not in that kind of way, but in a just man, these are dudes just like me. They were just kind of living a little bit different. And they weren't like talking all kind of crazy, like, you know, soft spiritual stuff. You know, they were just dudes like me that were happy, that were sober, that were enjoying their lives. And it was so attractive. It was just so, so attractive. And so, you know, I, I find myself going through this process and, uh, you know, start taking suggestions from these guys. And, you know, the thing that makes us so different and the different experience I had was that it's long term. You know, there, there were times and, and I'll tell you a quick story about that, which, you know, hopefully sums it up. But, you know, on day 30, I'm commencing from the program here and I'm going to the sober living house. And, you know, I mean, I genuinely had an experience. I was like, you know, man, I, you know, I found my community here and I really want this and, and I'm done and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, my guide was like, it was a privilege working with you. And my mom came to my commencement and my brother and there were, you know, tears and the whole deal. It was like a you know magical moment. And we drove off the parking lot, headed to the halfway house. My first thought was I want a bag of dope. <laughs> that's, that's reality, mm -hmm. you know? And so you know, for a guy like me, if I was headed back to wherever, you know, back to East Nashville, back to home, back to work, back to you know, all these things, there's no chance a guy like me is going to get clean, stay clean. Yeah. You know, and that's why so many times they do suggest uh, the sober houses and the halfway houses and we, we fight it. We just fight it so much, you know, but going back into your old environment, the odds aren't good. You know, no. I worked in treatment and I saw how the counselors would tell the patients they would make the recommendations for the halfway houses. 
and they would be like, oh, they just want money. I'm like, well, they're not making any money off the halfway houses. They might want money when they want to extend your stay at the treatment center. But mm-hmm. suggesting that you remove yourself from a dysfunctional home or from a house that you were living in where, you know, you have all those triggers or where you used to use, you know, not, not, not so much. Here's a problem that I have with, with AA. I mean, listen, I have a podcast about recovery. I don't claim to be a saint. I don't claim to work the best program. I stay sober on a daily basis. I wake up in the morning. I pray. I meditate. Um, I try to have as much gratitude as possible. I try to be a good person. I don't use drugs or alcohol. Am I Miss AA? Absolutely not. Do I have respect for the 12 steps? Yes. The problem that I always had was in early recovery and sometimes even now, which would I rather do? Gee, I wonder. Sit in this dark, depressing church on a beautiful day or in early recovery, I would say, go out and use. Now, today, it's not necessarily go out and use. Today, it's like, oh, it's a Saturday afternoon. Do I really want to be in this church or would I rather be at the park? That's why I have a hard time with meetings, you know, and it's it's not good. However, I do need connection with other alcoholics. And Joe, you talk a lot about the difference between the fellowship and and the program. Uh, tell, tell, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so, you know, my, my experience is that you know, I was a guy who, who went to a lot of meetings and, you know, had, like I said, had been going to meetings since 98 and, you know, family and in different 12 step fellowships. And, you know, I, I like you, I, you know, I didn't like the church basements and, and thought it was kind of lame and, uh, you know, just was not getting the relief that I needed just going to meetings. And, and, you know, interestingly enough, I think that's a really common uh, misconception about, you know, 12 step programs is that the meetings are the program, uh, you know, and, and they're really not, you know, the meeting meetings makers are, make it. Yeah, it's exactly it. Don't drink, go to meetings. You know, like I, I drink, you know, I do dope no matter what. Uh, and, you know, going to a meeting, you know, for an hour a day, you know, with a bunch of other recovering people uh, is not going to make me okay in my own skin. It's just not. And, you know, today, uh, you know, I'm very specific about you know, the meetings I go to, I'm not one of these guys that's kind of like doing my life. I'm like, oh man, I need a meeting. You know, like I need, need relief. So I'm going to go to a meeting. That's just not something that, uh, you know, the, the guys I run around with that we, you know, we talk about, but we have specific commitments where, you know, the purpose is to go and, and help newcomers. You know, that's it. You know, we're, we're showing up and we're, you know, we're talking about the program and we're talking about, you know, applying the principles of the steps to our lives and changing and, you know, having peace of mind and having purpose uh, and, and, and all the things that I really, really needed. Because, you know, you, like we talked about, you sober a guy like me up and internally, I'm, I'm just not well. You know, I, I'm re- like, like we talk about in our program is restless, irritable and discontent, you know, and that's my natural state. Um, and something that, uh, you know, an idea that I, I kind of get on board with because it's been so true in my life is that you know, I wake up with untreated alcoholism. You know, this morning I woke up with a mind, you know, that fire, sometimes it's like a chainsaw gen. You know, it's like, good morning. You know, all those people that love you, they don't love you. You know, today's going to be terrible. You know, and I've just got this mind that has nothing to do with alcohol and drugs. Um, That's just, it's really hard to live inside my head sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so I need a way out of that. 
you know, I need, I need an actual program that's going to help. And that's what the steps do for me and in my life. Um, is, is they give me a way to, you know, change my perception on the world, to tap into something that can, you know, solve my problem, which is I've got a crazy mind. Um, and I'm the kind of guy I'm going to get relief. You know, I'm either going to get relief through the steps or I'm going to get relief in the needle. And, and it's as simple as that. And, and going to enough meetings for me and a lot of the men I run around with was never enough relief. So what do you say to the person that has gone through the 12 steps yeah. and still chronically relapses that yeah. they didn't do it right? Is there a right or wrong way to do the 12 steps? No, there's not a right or wrong way. I think we, we do the best we can with where, where we're at. Um, I think, you know, and the question you pose, I think, is also potentially one of the things that um, kept me and a lot of other folks, you know, not getting the relief. And that was looking at the steps like something to be completed, you know. And so, you know, for the first time, I got around some men that were talking about, you know, the principles underneath the steps um, and, and applying these things to our daily lives. And so, you know, I was thinking I'm going to get through the steps, you know, I'm going to complete step 12. And then all of a sudden I'm going to be like this different dude, you know, and I'm just going to not want to get high anymore. And I'm going to be cool in my own skin. And. And what I found is that that's just not true. You know, I, you know, the, the real work and the steps, you know, and the inventory work and the amends process, you know, there's some work to be done. Um, but after going through the process, you know, there's some daily things that a guy like me needs to do if I want to continue to be in the program, not in the fellowship. Um, and like you talked about, you wake up, prayer, meditation, um, you know, am I trying to bring these principles into my affairs? Because, you know, my my biggest problem, Jen, is I, I I think I know, you know, I like to run the show and I want to be right. And, uh, I, you know, I want it my way. And for me, I've found there's not much peace living like that. You know, there's not much contentment living like that. And, and then the the biggest thing of all is the 12th step, which is, you know, where I finally get some real purpose. And that's working with other people that are struggling. You know, and and for me that, you know, I think about it often and, you know, I've got this life today that is beyond my wildest dreams, really. You know, I mean, you, you heard the end of my story. You know, I mean, I owed, you know, 80 grand to the IRS. I mean, it was $10,000 for me to get my driver's license back. I spent two years bumming rides with no license and no car. I mean, it was a it was a long road for me, not just internally, but externally. And I just didn't think it was possible that I'd ever have a semblance of a life. And today, I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's something I could never have imagined for real. Not just like, oh, my life is so good. Like it's for real beyond anything I could imagine. And, you know, so the problem though, is that I still have this mind, you know, and I can't remember how bad it was. You know, I can't, you know, be going through my life today in the, you know, Whatever I, I look at the guy with the the newer Jeep Grand Cherokee and it you know pisses me off or whatever you know remembering that I didn't have a driver's license for two years like that doesn't come into my consciousness to like pop me with some gratitude you know like I can't remember that stuff so I've got to continue for me anyway to do this work on a daily basis to maintain you know a level of humility and a level of willingness and the reason I do that is twofold one. I like, I like peace of mind. I like to be happy. And two, 
when I have peace of mind and I'm happy, I don't want to do dope. Because that's the real miracle of this whole thing, is that applying these things to my life, eventually, I just wasn't thirsty anymore. Now, I'm also convinced that if I stop doing this stuff on a daily basis, that I'll get thirsty again. You know, and and that's the kind of mind I've got. So just coming to terms with that for myself, um, you know, when I get up today and I'm running around and I'm meeting sponsees and I'm going to some meetings and I'm doing service work and all these recovery related things, you know, not all the time am I like, I have to do this. You know, there are a lot of those times where I'm like, man, I'm, I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying this part of my life to getting to have some purpose and, and be helpful. Um, and I think that's one of the things I was really missing because I just, I spent my entire life trying to serve me. I spent my entire life just trying to get the next best thing. And I judged progress based on, you know, what my title was and how much money in the bank and what my zip code was and, you know, how pretty she was and, you know, all those things that, um, you know, that just really, even when I have them, I don't find that internal peace. Um, and, you know, these aren't like super revolutionary spiritual ideas or anything, but for a guy like me who lived his entire life like that, uh, it was real important for me to find some some happiness and some peace and some purpose when I had nothing. Um, and then as a result of that, I can begin to appreciate these things in my life now when uh, when they come. Yeah. Big part of it's gratitude. I heard a lot of step three in there Mm -hmm. and obviously tons of 12 Yeah, and working with others. So important because I I know for myself as well, you know, I could feel like a piece of shit and uh, I could be totally in self and hating everything and looking at the other person and thinking that they have everything so much better than I do. Mm -hmm. And then I help someone else and it's like magic. Yeah. Better. So. That has nothing to do with going to the Friday night meeting, getting all dressed up, and then going out for coffee afterward. <laughs> yeah, right. We just talked about. So yeah. that is what the program is, Joe. I get it. I love that. That was yeah. awesome. And I also relate so much to the daily reprieve, waking up to what I call waking up in a brainstem. That's what my mm-hmm. therapist calls it. Just mm-hmm. uh, the, the restless, irritable discontent, a.k.a a bitch. All right. Like I wake up like a bitch every day. I work out first thing. First thing I do when I wake up is, well, I meditate and I'll thank God and pray. And I work out. And every single morning I say, I'm canceling because I have someone that comes and works out with me. I'm like, I'm canceling. I'm calling him. I'm telling him not to come. I'm not working out. I don't feel good. I'm tired. I hate life. You know, and then there's just that 1% of me that just like makes me do it. And then I go on with my day and I'm okay, you know, Mm -hmm. that push. And I also loved what you said when you were talking about the principles, how we have to apply the principles behind the steps. And I think maybe that's what I missed so many times was step one, powerless. However, I I didn't, I could admit I was powerless, but I didn't put in any honesty, Mm -hmm. you know? You you got some good stuff there. Definitely some good stuff. And if someone's listening and they want or if they know someone they love that's interested in getting help the way you got help, bring it on. I mean, you just said some really, really amazing, amazing stuff. And and you just helped me stay sober for the next uh, next next few hours. 
at least. <laughs> I have to keep telling myself every single, I, I got to, I got to remind myself of gratitude every, every uh, at least every half an hour. Cause I'm such an ungrateful bitch, but yeah. Tell us, tell us how we can get some help. Yeah. So, you know, if a, any man out there, uh, you know, or any families listening that, uh, you know, want help or need help and, and want to talk about discovery place as an option, you know, can call me directly. Uh, you can call me on my cell phone at 615-375-4227. Uh, you can check out, check out our website, uh, discoveryplace.info. And, you know, when it comes to, you know, my story and that as a story of I needed a new life, uh, like really a new life, not just, you know, 30 day patch up job and go home. Um, I honestly and obviously I'm a little biased, but nobody does it like we do, you know, with our long term deal and having an actual community of men and everyone, you know, working at Discovery Place that went through here. Um, but, you know, we also have a lot of men that come from all over the country um, that maybe only can do 30 days you know, that like, that's the best they can do and they can get the solid foundation here um, and then go back to, you know, home life, wherever that is. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're open to all men over the age of 18 that need help and, and, you know, would love to talk to anybody that, uh, that needs that. Awesome. And we'll, we'll put that information um, in the show notes as well. And one more question I have, is there a sister program for we women out there? It's the most commonly asked question I get asked. And unfortunately, no. All right. Well, we got to work on it. We got to start one up. You, me, Rach, we'll get together. Uh, I'm down. You know, we've <laughs> talked about it many times. I mean, th there are some great resources um, in, uh, in the Nashville area for women needing help. I mean, there's a nonprofit called The Next Door, um, which just does incredible work for women. Um, but as far as a sister similar program, no, there isn't one. Let me tell you, I, I'm so grateful, Joe. Thank you so much for coming on the L family to keep the anonymity. I'm not going to say the last name, but just amazing people. You heard firsthand what, what Joe's sister has done for me over the years. So I love you guys. I want to get Adam and your father on because they're a trip. I want to get them on together. I want yeah. them to play guitar. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> And thanks again. And you have been listening to Sober Exposure. And thanks again, Joe. Thanks so much, Jenna. It was great. Need more? Of course you do. The show's all about needing more. Go to my website at soberexposure.show or get stuck on my Instagram at soberexposure underscore podcast. 